Hello and welcome back to Fishnets and Philosophy. This is your host, Mix Bell Morrigan. And today is a solo episode as I continue my deep dive into the Purge franchise. Before I begin, I just want to once again extend my eternal gratitude to the fantastic Rebecca McCallum who joined me to launch this franchise deep dive as we discuss the Purge films. For the first episode, Rebecca and I talked about The Purge 2013, the film that launched this franchise, and I'm going to pick up from where that discussion ended and continue my exploration of this almost devastatingly timely and relevant franchise, The Purge films, this week. I am discussing The Purge Anarchy, which was a 2014 film. Writer and director James DeMonico was back, and immediately from the outset of the film, you can tell that it has the same guiding hand that is propelling the narrative forward. So many of the same central themes run throughout this movie, and I really think that having the same creative person behind the film helped make this one stand on its own legs both as a single film in its own right but also as being connected to the other though even though you can feel demonico's hand both in the directing and the writing the film itself is also very different in that it's doing what a lot of sequels do in that it's expanding the world of this franchise first Purge film was very much kind of single location. It was just within the main family's home in the suburbs. Whereas the Purge Anarchy is taking place in the inner city. And it's not just one location, it's expanded it. There are multiple locations as the characters that the film is following move through the city. I think the film does a really good job of giving that sense of place that this version of America exists in. It does a really good job of creating the world. Our main two characters are Eva Sanchez and her daughter Callie, played by Carmen Ajogo and Zoe Sal. This is who the film is really revolving around, and then there are a bunch of other characters that come in and play off the main two and both Eva and Callie they also have a paternal figure so the father grandfather who is Papa Rico played by John Beasley. Now Papa Rico is not only the paternal figure and the elderly figure but he's also extremely unwell and that is crucially important to the narrative of this film. The film starts before the purge occurs and we see Eva working in the diner that she works at. They're about to close up before everyone gets home, before the purge kicks in. And we see Eva asking her boss for extra shifts because she needs the money because her father is sick. So we can see how much having a person in your family who is unwell 
puts a lot of financial strain on a family that isn't extremely wealthy. And this is both a commentary on poverty and classism. On top of that, it's also a commentary on the American healthcare system. Because in a country with universal healthcare, a person would not need to take up extra work to afford the healthcare. So I feel that this film is both continuing the commentary on a classist society, but part of that classism, particularly in America, is the healthcare system. And this has been so much of a burden on this family that after Ava and Kelly are home and they go to bed, they wake up and see that Papa Rico's no longer there and he has left a note. And in that note, it essentially says that he has agreed to voluntarily be the sacrificial purge victim for a wealthy family. And we have this discussion between Eva and Callie about what they can do. And Eva essentially acts as the narrative device to tell us how in this American society, in the world of the purge, that the wealthy prey on the impoverished by offering exorbitant amounts of money to family if someone volunteers to be a sacrificial killing in the safety of the wealthy family's home. And if that isn't just indicative of the way extremely wealthy and just certain people in general view poor people, I, I remember just watching that film for the first time, I was just struck. I just had this deep feeling of emotional rage just washed through my body because it was just both extremely fantastical in the way that these films are, but also disturbingly believable. As in, you 100% would believe that if it was permissible, wealthy people would do this that they would offer to pay and I think that section where you realize what Papa Rico has done filmed and shot wonderfully and with the beat of the music it's really a terrific scene as you realize the gravity of what his decision means for Eva and Callie but that scene and this film highlights even more the disparity and classism that our heavily capitalist society encourages and essentially requires. Poverty is intentional. It's needed for the system to function. But the messaging that those in power give to us is that poverty is a moral failing. Those who are at the upper echelons of elitism of society, they trickle down this messaging that if you're poor it's a moral failing if you are without a home it's a moral failing all these different messages that you have failed if you fall into any type of category because that encourages infighting within the classes that aren't up at the upper echelons aren't the elitist 
and encourages infighting because also they sell the myth that if you just work hard enough you can be one of us one day which is a falsehood a lie and I really think that the Purge films do a great job of holding a mirror up to that lie of critiquing it and calling it out for the bullshit that it is and that's what I love about this film franchise is that it is timely and relevant it's interesting usually a lot of horror films will act as social commentary on society as it is today by showing either some type of dystopia or a disaster like Romero with his zombie films his films critique society as it is today by showing the fantastical situation of zombies or as he calls them ghouls but the purge films are really fascinating and interesting to me because they are holding a mirror up to society and critiquing it as it is today by essentially showing society as it is today but with a little bit of spice thrown in and that is just permissible murder whereas essentially all crime is permissible and i do find and it's something that rebecca and i kind of did talk about is that the purge says that all crime is permissible for x number of hours but people still will go to possibly the worst type of crime murder and i find that fascinating about what that commentary on human behavior is are we that prone to violence that if it's permissible will happily kill other people and it's something that I don't like to dwell on too much because I feel if I do dwell on it and think about it I'm not gonna like the answers that I find and I found that going back to this specific film that it really almost like watching it it felt like a proto squid game or rather a perfect companion piece because both the purge films and particularly purge anarchy in certain scenes and squid game are very much critiques of capitalism of society and the extremely wealthy but they are very unique to their own cultural settings for example as I already mentioned with the Purge films, a big part of what makes this particular story move forward is poverty due to healthcare system. Whereas with Squid Game, a lot of it is more a commentary on poverty that has occurred due to the island being split into two warring nations. And an island split by essentially colonial powers so i do think that both purge anarchy and the purge franchise as a whole and squid game are perfect companion pieces but it was just really interesting seeing it after having watched squid game and i know that squid game did take 10 years for the creator to get made so it's kind of wondering which feeds into which and also the purge anarchy is almost 10 years old and the squid game series which is only very current 
has been being on the mind of that creator for that same amount of time. So it's interesting to see how they've both been in a kind of social psyche for the same amount of time in different ways. And they're both commentating on the same strong social themes. It's really interesting and fascinating. One of the characters that we're introduced to in the Purge Anarchy is the character of a sergeant who is played by Frank Grio. And Frank Grio does what Frank Grio does best in that he just plays a badass man who's proud of violence. <laughs> and if you know what you're good at, keep doing it. That's what I say when it comes to acting. But he's this mysterious figure who we're introduced to at brief bits at the start of the film. And we can tell that he's obviously getting set to purge. He's laying out weapons, he's getting dressed in his bulletproof armor and his attire, getting his car kitted out. So you can tell that he's a man on a mission. He obviously has a specific plan of action for the night. But it looks like whatever his specific plan is does get derailed in that he sees Ava and Callie essentially being kidnapped from their apartment. And rather than just ignoring it and driving on, he can't ignore it and he stops and goes in to be essentially the heroic person of the day and saves them from their would-be captors. And we notice very quickly that the would-be captors don't seem to be just your everyday people that are purging. It seems to be a well-organized, well-run group of almost mercenaries as they have a van with lots of security cameras and security feeds. So it definitely makes you question who these people are, what is their agenda, what is their ulterior motive. And at the same time that we see the sergeant rescue Eva and Callie, we're also introduced again to the character of Shane and his partner. Shane is played by Zach Gilbert, who people would know from Midnight Mass. And they were just a bickering couple who were essentially, looks like, set to break up. They got caught after the purge started out on the streets. And then they are being hunted down by the gang of ghouls, they're all these essentially gang members that have painted skeletal, ghastly makeup on their faces and Shane and his girlfriend are trying to escape their would-be captors and they run across the sergeant and Eva and Callie.
So this group ends up becoming a group of five that stick together. The sergeant's car is destroyed. And then he states that he needs a car to get to another area of the city so he can complete his mission. Ava convinces him that if he helps her and her daughter, and then the other two, get across the city to her friend, the friend will allow the sergeant to take the car. So this is what happens for the next portion of the film. The sergeant helps them and protects them. We get to Ava's friend's house. And then it quickly transpires that it was a lie. The car was never going to be given to the sergeant. <gasps> and one of my favourite bits when we're in her friend's apartment is we realise that one of her sisters was having an affair with a different sister's husband and that sister is pissed off so ends up shooting the other sister. So this family that were basically huddling together on the purge night ends up essentially almost all killing each other because of one person being unable to keep it in their pants or because I am a polyamorous person one person not having the communication skills to say hey this monogamy thing it isn't really for me I'd like to try and open it up and because of one person's inability to have that type of conversation a bunch of the same family end up dead. And I kind of find that painfully ironic. <laughs> but going back to the ghouls, we are introduced then to them again as Ava and Callie and the sergeant and Shane and Shane's girlfriend escape from the apartment, but then they end up getting intercepted by the ghouls who kidnap them. And we realize that this gang, what they are, is they essentially kidnap people from the streets and then they trade them to extremely wealthy people so that these extremely wealthy people can line up their kidnapped victims to be auctioned off for permissible murder under the light of the purge and I think what this scene really shows is that it's a strong commentary that there will always be people who may not be, in quotation marks, outright evil, as in they're not doing the killing, but they'll always be complicit by exploiting tragedy for monetary gain. The fact that this gang exists as they know that if we kidnap people we can sell them on and make a profit is so painfully accurate to human behavior because I 100% do believe that there would be people who will do that if the purge were real 
there would be people who would seek to make money. And again, this is the film commentating on the absolute corruptive nature of capitalism. A profit before everything else. And I actually kind of think that that's really interesting that one of the members of this gang of ghouls was played by Lakeith Stanfield in a very early film. And then since he went on to star in the amazing Sorry to Bother You, which is another film that is criticizing capitalism. I thought that was very interesting seeing him in that role. And this was again another moment where the Squid Game comparisons feel very apt because we see our gang of protagonists literally being auctioned off to be murdered by the extremely wealthy. And there was just something so disturbing and creepy about the scene where you see them on the stage and all these people like essentially at like almost like a Met Gala event just in these extravagant suits and ball gowns and dresses mingling and laughing around tables with their wine and their food bidding to be the people that get to kill the strangers on stage and that scene that one is one of the ones that I found the most horrific watching this because it just evoked this visceral feeling in me of just abject horror of seeing people or the possibility that people could be so cold-hearted and so callous that they don't see humans on stage. They just see people to be killed. And it felt very much like a allegory or a different type of commentary on slavery which is, again, unique to American history. Or not unique, but very relevant to American history. So I feel that this might have been James DeMonaco's subtle way of commenting that capitalism is always going to lead to the exploiting and violence of minorities. And the simple fact that our main protagonists are all Latin, bar the sergeant and Shane, and Shane's girlfriend, but the main protagonists are Latin and Hispanic. I found that very interesting in that form of commentary. And we have our characters that are now in this type of maze, about to be 
hunters essentially by the wealthy people who auctioned to kill them and the sergeant being Frank Grillo and just fantastic at being a badass prone to violence is able to kill a few of the would-be perpetrators but they all end up being cornered but essentially before they could be killed we see and hear some shooting from outside the doors of this kind of maze area where the hunting was occurring and we see the doors get blasted through and then a few different people with guns come barging in one of these people is Carmelo which is a tie back to the start of the film where Callie was trying to get her granddad to watch these videos from the character Carmelo who is essentially the leader of this group of I guess rebels or freedom fighters I'm not quite sure what the right term would be but there are these group of people who are very much the purge is awful and should be done away with and Carmelo is the leader of this group and he is the one that storms in with his band of mercenaries and they rescue our protagonists and I also just want to say as well that the character of Carmelo is portrayed by the absolutely amazing Michael K. Williams and knowing that this actor died well before natural age would have taken its toll is so devastating because he really was one of the best actors of his generation the first time i was introduced to him was watching the wire and everything he's been in he makes better that's the type of actor he was he was one of those actors that if i saw the call sheet i'd be willing to watch whatever it is because he's just that powerful he just commands every scene and it is utterly devastating knowing that we won't get any more pieces of art with him in it but he's the character that plays Carmelo and they come in and save our protagonists and I loved as well that one of the people that helps to save our protagonists is the in quotation marks stranger from the first purge which is played by the actor Edwin Hodge and I do kind of find it very <laughs> kind of just frustrating that even on the credits for the purge anarchy Edwin Hodge is still just down as the stranger they don't even give him a name for the second film he's just still referred to as the stranger but I love that he is there because it shows that him being rescued in the first purge 
led into this one. It's almost like a commentary on karmic justice giving back. He was spared by someone else. So now he's giving that energy back into the universe. And I think that that's a very nice, subtle commentary. But also it just shows, you know, in a way of how things are connected. Now that he is there and he's one of the ones that helps rescue. These protagonists are only saved because he was saved in the first film. It's direct narrative into each other and I love that type of storytelling. And just again, going back to these, this group of extremely wealthy people who were the ones that held an auction to murder strangers. I feel that this specific scene is really hitting home the message of a strong commentary on the links between white supremacy, classism, and capitalism. And it's even made more poignant by the fact that the rebels are freedom fighters that are led by Carmelo. None of them are white. They're all either black or other people of color. And that is a contrast to the extremely wealthy white people who were hosting this purge event. I feel it's very poignant. And on the nose commentary. And speaking of like on the nose commentary, this is something I've seen a lot by many in the horror community that they dislike a lot of the new horror films coming out because it's no longer subtext, it's just text. It's social commentary on the surface. And I don't know why that has to be a bad thing. I feel that it can only be considered a bad thing if you are a part of the group of people that is being criticised. And if you find it annoying that you're being criticised, then it just shows that you lack critical thinking skills. You lack the ability to know that you are part of an oppressive class. So yeah, I don't like that criticism that is lauded against a lot of horror films that their social commentary is too on the nose. I've never understood that criticism. But with the Purge Anarchy, it is very much on the nose. This isn't subtext. This is very much text. This is the film saying that white supremacy, classism, and capitalism are intricately linked. They can't be separated. Because white supremacy needs classism and classism 
needs capitalism. They all need each other to survive. They all feed each other. They're all the reason the other exists. For example, I don't think you would necessarily have white supremacy in a non-classist or capitalist society and vice versa. They all feed into each other and I just love how the purge anarchy does such a good way of holding a mirror up to that structure of society and criticising and calling it out. But speaking of criticising and calling things out, the one thing I've noticed after watching the first purge film and the purge anarchy, so now it is only two out of the rest of the films, but the one thing I have noticed from watching the first two films is that it seems to be a world that is very heteronormative and cisgender. All of the characters, from what we can see on the surface anyway, are straight and they're definitely all cisgender. Now, who knows? It could be that some of the characters are bisexual, but that isn't addressed, so we don't know. And what we've almost been told to believe is that straight is the default. So unless we're told otherwise, the character is straight. And I find it so annoying that that is what our social default is. Like, I kind of think that unless a character's sexuality is part of the narrative, we shouldn't have an assumption on sexuality at all, because it doesn't matter. But I find it annoying that society has conditioned us to assume that unless we're told otherwise, a character is straight. But just on my observations of these films, we don't have any explicitly queer characters and we definitely don't have any trans characters. And I find that really interesting. Like, I don't know if it's an intentional decision or if it's just a mishap, but I feel that if the purge were to be a real thing, then it would be queer people who would be targeted in large numbers. They would be the ones that are targeted first off because we already are. We live in a current structuring of society that wants queer people dead. There are countries that still have homosexuality being a crime. There are countries that are trying to make being trans a crime. That are trying to essentially make it a crime to support your children if they're trans or queer. And that's happening now. As I'm recording this podcast, that's happening around the world. That queer people are under threat. So I find it very interesting that Purge films don't comment on that. Now, maybe it's because James DeMonaco, as writer and director, is 
aware of how likely it would be that queer people would be automatically targeted because of their queerness and that if you have queer characters the only way you can tell the story is if they're targeted and I don't know how you could walk that because you'll either potentially get criticized by people that are watching the films saying that you're deliberately making films where queer people are the center of violence. Which is going to encourage violence against queer people in the real world. Not that people need any encouragement anyway, because it's already happening. Or, if you were to have the films with queer characters, it would be the queer characters survive or aren't targeted, which would then feel unrealistic. So it's a fine line. So maybe James and Monica was aware of that and went with the decision of going, we just won't have any queer characters, so that the very real reality that queer people would be the target of violence under a purge doesn't have to be addressed. Now I could just be jumping the ship. I have the rest of the films of this franchise to watch, and to this point, I've only ever actually seen The Purge and Purge Anarchy. I haven't seen the rest of the franchise, so these are all going to be first watches for me. So, I could be wrong. As the films go on, there could be a commentary on queerness and violence against queer people. But right now, I do not see any inkling of that being the case. But I do hope I will be proven wrong. So yeah, that's been my discussion of The Purge Anarchy. I know it was a solo episode, so less, I guess, fun than there being another voice to have a discussion of the films with. But I do hope you enjoyed my analysis of The Purge Anarchy. And I do hope you'll let me know on Twitter or Instagram what you thought about this episode and keep your ears and eyes peeled for future episodes as they drop. And I'm excited to watch the rest of the Purge films for the first time and have future discussions either solo or joined by someone else to discuss the rest of the Purge films. So before I let you go, wherever you do listen to my podcast, please rate and review. It will just really help boost my numbers. Let people know that you're listening and that you'd recommend me. It'll just put a smile on my face. And reach out to me on Twitter or on Instagram. On Twitter, I am MixBellMorrigan. That's M-X-B-E-L-M-O-R-R-I-G-A-N or you can also find me on Instagram both with that name and also fishnets and philosophy podcast or just go to my website where you can see the links to all my social medias the website is fishnetsandphilosophy.wordpress.com but yeah reach out follow 
let me know what else you'd like me to discuss. Thank you for listening.